who are in need of you know, what has formerly been called uh, basic um, or new members class. It isn't always basic. <laughs> Not to mention there was a time, I don't know if it still is the case, I was looking to the youngest people in here. Um, it, basic was an insult, you know, like, like you're so basic. <laughs> certainly don't want to, certainly don't want to give that impression. So we're, we're in search of a, t- we will start our uh, small catechism class in the near future, in the next, in the next few weeks for certain. Chapter 21, <clears throat> I don't want to get, I don't want to make this laborious um, because it's supposed to be joyful. It's supposed to be self-evident. It's supposed to be climactic. So I'm going to restrain myself from going too deep into the background. But I do want to give you a little bit, of course. As we get into chapter 21, we see the climactic vision of the new heavens and the new earth. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I think we talked in, in some respect. So one of the dogmatic... One of the dogmatic questions of the new heavens and the new earth is what happens with the old heavens and the old earth. And we spoke, spoke to that to one degree or another. Um, there, are, there are two dogmatic opinions that can be distinguished, and we just leave it as an open question. An open question is where you find something theological where it's pretty much an either-or, but you don't have enough information or you don't have a straight biblical passage that says, obviously it is one way or the other, but we're not going to condemn each other if you fall on one side or the other. A classic example of that would be the Semper Virgo, the doctrine that um, Mary remains ever a virgin. There's good reason to hold that. There's good reason not to hold that. Um, you, can, you can discern for yourself. You can remain agnostic. But the point is, we're not going to condemn each other over that. We're not going to divide over that. And so, too, the, this question of um, what happens to the old heavens and the, and the old earth, um, I think... I think that very few would argue that it's entirely annihilated and that there's a new heavens and a new earth ex nihilo, though that is an extreme position. The continuity of our resurrected bodies, the continuity of Christ's resurrected body, seems to connect us to the substance of this creation. And so you see this creation um, restored. Now, to what degree? Is it utterly destroyed, completely turned to ash, and then from the ashes brought forth new? That, to me, seems um, a, more, a more accurate kind of position. Or, or is it sort of changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the way Paul says our bodies are? And so there's not really this dramatic, climactic destruction into, you know, not, not technically nothing, but ash, dust, and then it's brought back. Um, or, or is it a, a smoother, more... What's the word I'm looking for? Organic transition, where it's simply all changed in the moment of the, or in the twinkling of an eye. Okay, so we can debate about that dogmatically, whatever. It's an open question. But what we're all agreed on is that a new heaven and a new earth are coming. Of course, as we talked about, st- stunningly, at least I hope it's not maybe stunningly anymore, heaven has to be made new. Heaven itself has to be made new. I mean, is there, was there ever sin in heaven? Absolutely. Satan was there. Satan was there. Satan was in heaven. There was war in heaven. He was cast out of heaven. There's sin. There's war. There's all all sorts. There's saints' tears being wiped away. Okay? So heaven is indeed indeed paradise. And that because Jesus is there. Today you will be with me in paradise. But it's a kind of paradise in the not yet sense. And even being in heaven, you'll know that. You'll know that it's the not yet sense. This is C.S. Lewis. It's, it's, the, it's the dawn just before the sun rises. It's, it's light and glorious and wonderful in its own way, but it's not the fullness. The fullness is to be raised in our bodies with all the saints and to see Christ in his body and to see God face to face and to be surrounded with the new heavens and the new earth and to have unfallen grass under our feet or uh, streets paved with gold, as the case may be, um, and, and to breathe in air that isn't slowly killing us, and uh, to no longer have any suffering or sorrow. So it will be, again, just, I don't want to dig too deeply into this, but it will be remarkable in this sense. You will be more you than you've ever been before. You will see the roots of you that trace all the way back to baptism that you only realized in part in this life now come to their fullness and, and maturation. 
you will see in yourself the image of Christ because you will indeed be made in the image of God in the final and absolute sense. I mean, just to exist, just to be, is going to be so wonderfully and amazingly different. I think, I think our Lord gives, tries to give us a picture of this in the sense where he, um, and I think I preached on this. That's the problem with getting old and being a preacher. I don't know, some time ago, <laughs> at some occasion or another. But, but that, the, that the, saints, the saints will shine as the sun, you remember this, in the kingdom of their Father. And, and that imagery of, of shining really bespeaks that we're going to come into the fullness of what God intended, almost as if he planted a seed in Eden, and that seed has finally grown up. Now, it was never God's intention that weeds would come and the plant would die and seeds would fall into the earth and seeds would spring forth again. And in this whole Christological salvific drama, we would end up um, where we end up. It was never his plan. But it was nonetheless his plan that we end up where we end up, that we come into the fullness of the image bearers of God. And this is where there's nothing at all to be ashamed of. Um, in fact, the, the book of Hebrews says rather, rather scandalously, the angels will be our servants. They've been made a little above us now, not for long. Um, they, will, they will be our servants. And you can, you can glimpse this when you see in Christ, in the transfiguration, that that's where we're going. That's who we're going to be. God is forever man in a way that he is not angel, for example. So, I mean, growing up for so long, I'd hate to say how long, there was like this embarrassment about being a human. You know, like even a human at its best, kind of like, yeah, well, we're still like lower than the angels. Um, and this is really where this thought comes from. Like, you know, when, when the little girl dies and we all say, oh, she's become an angel. Oh, we all get our wings. Because what's latent in that is this idea that being a human can't ever be eternal or right, or who would want that? We've got we've to leap out of our species into another. But what the Scriptures show us is that that's not at all the case. And the Scriptures are very bold to even call us small-g gods. This is, the, this is the revealing and the unveiling of the sons of glory. And there's a whole theology behind this too. Now I am getting a field, sorry, a far afield. But um, there's this whole theology that Paul taps into and brings up in Romans, the unveiling of the sons of God. What does he say prior to that that the creation, the whole of creation is in? Birth pangs. Birth pangs and labor and travail. So what does that mean? We who are in this world are in the womb or in the womb. The early church spoke this way of martyrdom, that in dying for Christ, and by extension, dying a faithful death of any kind, confessing Christ, but I think most purely seen in martyrdom, one is not dying, but being born. One is ceasing to be the the, the formless, shapeless, not quite humanity that we are now and becoming a true human being. And so death, death becomes birth. And this is very much attuned then. So what is, it, what is it to die in this world without faith in Christ, without baptism, without being conformed into the image of his son? It's to be stillborn. And that's, that's the way that... Uh, some of the martyrs spoke. I think it was Ignatius and, um, who spoke about this. And he, he, talked, about, he talked about, don't let, me, don't let me miss my martyrdom. Don't let me chicken out. Don't try to get me out of this. Don't pull strings, lest I become stillborn. So let me, let me die that I may live. Let me... Let me be martyred that I may be born. Um, let me cease to be what I am that I may become truly man, truly human. That's one of the beauties, the kind of the double entendres in Christ is true man. Not only true man in the sense that he, you know, 
has our flesh and has our bones, but that he is what man is meant to be. He is obedient and faithful to the Father, even unto death. He's the perfect fulfillment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul. And he is the perfect fulfillment of love your neighbor as yourself, as he lays down his life, not only for us, but for the whole world. He's the perfect man. What does he ask of himself? He says, I came not to do my own will, but my Father's will. In the garden, at the height of all temptation, temptation like we can't even imagine, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Right? That, that, is, that is, as I come to think about it, that is, a, in the first sense, a didactic point, a teaching point. To say that is teaching us what our attitude ought to be when we're facing the Father's will and we find ourselves not willing it or struggling with it. Christ shows us the way of being a true man. Well, sorry for that digression. I'm, I'm profoundly interested in this way of thinking because so many scriptures speak to it. And so as we inherit the new heavens and the new earth, the fullest sense of that is being enfleshed, being in our bodies with the new creation transformed all around us. And that's really the reality into which we're speaking now. So you're going to see really concrete things like Jerusalem and like the temple. And even the most glorious things we have as Christians are, are just a type and a foreshadowing of what is to come. We've talked about that with communion where Jesus, where Jesus talks about um, his body as being the temple. Remember this? And now I know I did this in one of my classes but that's the problem when you teach so many classes during the week. I don't know if it was this class or not, so bear with me. I'll make it quick. But you can see a progression from God walking in the garden, but it's almost, it's almost shadowy. It's almost ghost-like. He dwells with man, but not fully. Of course, sin happens and everything changes shape. But the progression then moves to the tabernacle. God tabernacles with the people. And then his presence among them becomes even more concrete in the temple. Now he is templed with them. The drama of Ezekiel, and we'll talk about in just a moment, is how the people, well, maybe I should start with the original temple created by Solomon, where God reminds him and reminds the people through him that if you keep my covenant, I will remain here with you, and I will be your people, and you will have my protection, my grace, my mercy, my protection. It will go well for you. If you reject and break my covenant, then I will no longer dwell with you. So the drama of Ezekiel is that that time came. You know, the kingdoms divided. Everything got so wicked and so pagan that Israel and Judah were worse than the pagans, and Israel got wiped out. And you would think that if anything would cause Judah to repent, it would be that, but they don't. And so the, finally the day comes when God is going to leave the temple. And this is one of the, one of the great dramatic points of Ezekiel. What then of the temple? It's, it's going to be destroyed. Well, if the temple's destroyed, what's going to come? And that's where Ezekiel paints for us this, this temple that is, I mean, in terms of its geometry, in terms of its just sheer size, it would be impossible to fathom as an earthly temple. So he's speaking of that temple which is to come. We'll glance at this in a minute. Okay? But there's this crisis when God leaves the temple. So just as he tabernacled and then templed, think about it, think about it in these terms. When Christ comes, John chapter 1 tells us that he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then as the Gospels progress, we see a transition from his tabernacling among us to his templing among us. And I think that that temple lends itself this way, and I would draw on Hebrews as my proof text for this, but it lends itself to this reflection that, you know, remember Jesus saying, destroy this temple, he's talking about the earthly concrete temple, in three days and I will raise it, raise it again. And they said, you know, you're not going to destroy that and raise it in three days. And then we learned that he wasn't, in fact, talking about that temple. He was talking about his body. His body, then, is the temple. And this, this then becomes quite profound as to why he gives us his body in the Lord's Supper. And in the language and imagery of Hebrews, we enter through the veil of his flesh. 
So think of this sacramentally. By partaking of the body of Christ, by partaking of the flesh of Christ, you enter into the communion of the holiest of holies. After all, who dwells there? Christ. And what blood is it that you drink in the, in the Lord's Supper? It's the blood poured out once and for all on the mercy seat. So you enter the veil through his, uh, of his flesh, you partake of the bread, you are in the holiest of holies, and you drink of that blood poured out on the tabernacle once and for all, and you are, you are cleansed in such a way that you belong in the holiest of holies. That's communion. Now you can view communion from many, many biblical angles, but this is a rather profound one because it ties in so directly to what Revelation is telling us. What is to come is not this dwelling with God in the holiest of holies by sacrament and thus by faith, but dwelling with God in the holiest of holies by sight. By sight. Seeing him face to face and having this be the essence then of our existence with him, or at least the, the core and center of our, of our everlasting existence, the beatific vision. Okay, so all of this then, when we say he has created the new heavens and the new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. We talked about the sea, that's a whole theology unto its own. The hooking of Leviathan, remember Jesus on the cross? I am a worm and not a man, the worm on the fish hook. And, he's, and the Leviathan comes up to swallow him, thinking this is it, I've got him. And he's in taking, in taking uh, the man... He discovers God, and he's caught and captured. No man could capture him, and our Lord Jesus captures the Leviathan. So then, then the, the God of the seas is tamed, the chaos of the seas is tamed by our Lord walking on the seas, showing his dominion over them, um, drawing them still with nothing but the sound of his voice. And so chaotic, demonic elements, symbolic of the sea. You don't have to, th- you know, I guess, you know, Kick out there on your little, uh, on your little paddleboard, and consider the great whites underneath. <laughs> and you feel you feel a little of that, you know, that chaos and fear of the sea, or um, you know, swim or boat out to a place where uh, you look around and there's there's no land to be seen, and you're disoriented. You know, that's so. There, there you can just sort of glimpse what what is native to them. Um, about, about the sea. And so I think that that's what's going on here with the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem means city of peace. And the Jerusalem below is depicted as, as evil, as the realm of the Pharisees and the people who crucified Jesus and threw him outside of the city. Remember this? So this is the new Jerusalem, opposed to that old Jerusalem. The the old Jerusalem is from below. The new Jerusalem is from above, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, a blurring of images here, but the city is coming down from God. And that that is a picture of the church, the holy Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We know that because the subject doesn't change. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Just the imagery changes. Okay. So the city, Jerusalem, is the church. The church is the bride adorned for her husband. And we see then what God, before the foundations of the world, had in mind. that the second person of the Trinity would marry humanity. Now, what is, what is the essence of marriage in, in Genesis? That the two become one flesh. That the two become one flesh. And so, again, think of this sacramentally. Christ gives us his body and his blood to eat and to drink precisely so that we would be Flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, one blood with him. Um, I 
I mean this in the absolute purest sense. But in, in terms of the, the manifestation of the one flesh union, that's, you know, that's the sexual act, the marital act between husband and wife. Um, communion is the equivalent of that because it's the sharing together. You can't possibly get more intimate with Christ, more connected with Christ, more one with Christ, this side of the new heavens and the new earth, than in Holy Communion. It's a foretaste of that wedding feast to come. It's not yet the full thing, but it's as close as we can get. It's a, it's a perfect foreshadowing of it. So the bride is adorned for her husband. The two are going to become one in such a way that Christ, who is our temple, joins himself to us in a way that he becomes the temple and we become the temple. You can see verses in the... In the um, in the New Testament, especially in Paul speaking this way about being, becoming living stones, it's very, it's very true, living stones of the temple of God filled with the Spirit. It's very true that that, that has a, a reality based in our present life, in this present world, but the fullness and climax of that is when we ourselves are built into the temple of God. Again, I mean, consider the beatific vision, if you can picture it, and it's probably wrong to picture it, but... You, you get, um, I mean, there's, there's God and there, the entire temple built all the way around him is made of saints and angels, you know, these angelic beings and small g gods. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the imagery we're driving toward. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the climax of all of it. The walking in the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, the coming of Jesus tabernacled in the flesh, the Jesus as our temple, entering that temple through the Lord's Supper, through the Holy Sacrament, and then all of this driving to the climax the marriage of God and man, the dwelling place of God with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Um, Because this is climactic and transitional, it shouldn't come as a surprise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I mean, what I love about this and, and meditate upon, as I have previously in Revelation, is that it's not like we all just get a lobotomy and everything's happy. There's, a, there's an organic, holistic healing that takes place. You know, we die with many, with many wounds. Sometimes those are afflicted externally in the form of persecution. Sometimes those are inflicted internally. It's, the, it's where the, the demons in their warfare against us have afflicted us. We need, those, we need those wounds healed. We need those scars transfigured to shine like the scars of Christ. And that's, that's what's going on here. Nothing is lost. Nothing is futile. Everything is cleansed and purified. I mean, the only things that are lost and futile are our sins. Those are put away forever. So... So wiping away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Chiefly because we're now with the one who is life. How can you die if you're with the one who is life? That's even the mystery that Jesus teaches us. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I mean, could you imagine reading the Bible literally and thinking, Oh, no, I'm going to die. I must not have ever lived and believed in him, truly. What's Jesus saying? That whoever lives and believes in me, even though you pass through what looks like death and what this world calls death, you're not actually going to die. You're not actually going to experience death, which is ultimately an image of separation from God. In fact, you're going to be united and joined with me. So so even now we can see how death has been transformed as we, in the imagery we used just a moment ago, into a new birth. And death And death isn't a true death. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. But in this this final climactic scene, 
what will be the climax of our history and this whole creation. Death is no more. It's put entirely under Christ's feet as he has already lopped off its head by his own death and by his own resurrection. And that means, again, a universal resurrection for all humanity, though that's not in view here. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And that's the essence of baptism, by the way. I mean, none of this, sometimes I think we get the idea, well, we get the idea that baptism and communion are somehow like afterthoughts of God or weird quirks of the New Testament. I mean, as I've tried to show, in a, albeit in a very different vein, that, that the essence of communion traces all the way back down to Genesis, just in this sense of dwelling with God and the final, ultimate purpose of Holy Communion is the penultimate climax of dwelling with God, you see. And so this, this impulse that is expressed most foundationally in Holy Communion, that we be one with Jesus, traces all the way back to, to Genesis. There's other ways it traces, traces to Genesis that are more obvious and, and maybe even more fun, more pleasing mentally, when you just think that by a tree we fell, by a tree we were restored. By eating we fell, by eating we are restored, by eating what hangs from the tree, um, we ca- death came upon us. Now by eating what hangs from the tree, life comes upon us. All of that brought sin, now all of that brings life. I mean, you can trace, so you can trace that communion eating of the body of Christ all the way back there in a, just a very simple way. This is a little more abstract, a little more hard to wrap your head around maybe, but the roots are there. And then, and then the making of all things new. So the first creation, you have God creating the heavens and the earth. The earth is formless and void. And um, what's hovering over the face of the deep? The Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And then God said. Who's hiding in that word said? Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, or the word was with God, and the Word was God. That's, that's how John has us understand what's going on in Genesis. So you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the dawn of creation. And oddly, strangely, what's the one thing you have that is just inexplicably there? Water. Water. The deep. The deep. So then, so then, when Christ comes and he teaches in John 3, Nicodemus, you know, who's a good and righteous man according to worldly standards, He says, you must be born again. Everything you have and are must die. Your righteousness is of no account. You must be born again. You must be a new creation born from above of water and the Spirit. Wait a minute. What did we see back in Genesis? The Spirit is hovering over the water. This is why Paul will later say, what matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So the new creation is already breaking through, and that's precisely why Christ says, I came to make all things new. In a very profound sense, remember how all things are made through him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. And now he enters the world himself and wraps himself in the stuff of creation. It's actually scientifically incorrect to think of Jesus as this kind of unit, um, this human unit that doesn't breathe our air, that doesn't shed his skin cells, that doesn't eat and, and thus become part of creation and creation part of him. In other words, there's a, there's a a a subtle error here in our thinking if we think of Jesus become man as if he just becomes a unit. He's doing far more than that. In becoming man, he is becoming one with the creation. So he through whom it was made is becoming one with what was made. For what purpose? (laughs) To bring it all to an end 
and to bring it all to a new beginning. In a very real sense, the death of the cross, or the cross, the death of Jesus, is the is the axis mundi. Is this is this thing within time and space that also transcends all time and space, so that the whole of creation, if you visualize it this way, is swirling about. It's sucked into the cross. It's sucked into the death of the one through whom all things were made. And on Easter morning, when he comes out of that tomb. All, of cre- all the new creation is coming with him. Right. So he says to his disciples, go and baptize. You know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Why? New creation trailing behind him, being pulled through his death and resurrection so that the new heavens and the new earth are made through him. It's one of the most beautiful things that Mel Gibson gets right in his Passion movie where he has Jesus say, I'm making all things new. It's exactly what's happening. Okay, so we hear these words then, a new creation, and a creation that will be infinitely more dynamic than this creation. Infinitely more dynamic. Because we're chained to sin. We're chained to death. We're chained to the ruler of this world, temporary, Satan. Everything that we can see, the greatest possible freedoms you can conceive of in this world. Ah, go do everything. Check off all the, all the things on my bucket list. It's like that. I mean, we're so utterly confined, we don't even know it. Chrysostom tells us that the most free men on earth are also the most confined and the most enslaved. Because while they're free to go do whatever they want, they're entirely sla- enslaved to their passions entirely enslaved to themselves. That's bondage of the will, by the way. That's Luther before Luther. About a thousand years before Luther. Okay, so, f- so we're, going to find, we're going to find that the new heavens and the new earth are infinitely more dynamic, infinitely more interesting. And the thought of being bored in the new heavens and new earth There's just no place for it. I mean, Satan's greatest trick is teaching a bunch of kids that, first of all, we don't go to the new heavens and the new earth. We go to heaven forever. His next greatest trick is you float on a cloud in a, in a you know, in a little toga <laughs> with a harp in your hand, and it'll be never-ending church. You know. I mean, who wants to go to a heaven like that? But that heaven, doesn't res- that heaven doesn't look anything like the biblical heaven. I mean, I, mean may- I keep saying this, but if you have one takeaway point from Revelation, <laughs> I hope you have like 20. But if you have, if you have one today, um, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be incredible beyond what eye has seen and ear has heard. God gives us enough to glimpse this and to have this hope within us. And that's what I mean when I say, it, like in the sermon today, you know, when you, when you contemplate the things that are above, when you look to the future, this world and its problems and the things we're struggling with start to shrink. And in their shrinking, they gain a, we gain a perspective. Not to say that they're unimportant. Not to say that we shouldn't fight. Not even to say that we shouldn't lay down our lives for them. We should. But even so, contextualize it. Not that big of a deal. Luther so wonderfully, he's got this thing, I'm just going to have to paraphrase it. But he's like, as soon as we get to heaven, the second we are in heaven, he's not even talking about the new heavens and the new earth. The second we are in heaven and we see the face of Jesus, we'll think to myself, why wasn't I more brave? Why didn't I do more? Why did I bury my head in the sand? Why was I so consumed with worry and things? Simply because you finally, we will finally and eternally see the reality of what is. Now, the, the call to us right now is to see it with the eyes of faith and then to live as that, to live as such. Okay. So this is really, really eminently practical theology because it changes and shapes the way we see our lives and especially the conflict within our lives. Okay, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. 
the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, uh, we hear that once again, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When we covered this last week, I thought long and hard. And we, when we covered it last week, we, co- we covered the water, the water stuff, I think. We can always go deeper if you want. But the cowardly stuck out to me is so odd. So the cowardly works like this. Particularly, particularly in view here are the apostates. Because the, the cowardly are those who are not faithful unto death. Why are they not faithful unto death? Because it hurts to be faithful unto death. I'd rather be profitable, rich in the world stuff. I'd rather be loved, praised and honored by men. I'd rather have life go easy and be persecution free. And so I turn my back on God. I turn my back on Christ. And in so doing, I turn my back on becoming man. So... I think that's what's in view here with the cowardly, apostates. Yeah, I'm pretty certain of that. The faithless, okay, now we get more generic. The faithless is also kind of one of these gateways, right? If you don't have faith in Christ, you're faithless, you're an unbeliever. And then from that flows these other things, you know, whatever is done apart from faith is sin. And if you'll not have a savior, you'll have the law. That's what remains. So you either take full grace on account of Christ and his blood shed, or you take the law and your own merits and worthiness, which works out for exactly no one. So detestable murders, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And of course, we've already seen um, the dragon and the two beasts thrown into that lake. So now that's hell proper. It's not the prison right now from which everyone will be released and raised in their bodies and then the final judgment. This is the climax of hell, is the second death, the lake of fire. Okay, verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. It's it's just beautifully written. It's just so beautifully written because you have this seven, seven, seven angels, seven bowls, seven plagues, this threefold seven, which is exactly the structure of Revelation. Three sevens. It's just, it's just beautiful attention to detail. I mean, Revelation is absolutely a literary masterpiece. Frankly, so is the Gospel of John, which is one of the best, one of the best <laughs> reasons for, for thinking that the same guy wrote both. And perhaps even for seeing um, them as a two-part series. That's a really fascinating thesis and idea that in the same way that Luke is Luke part one and Acts is Luke part two, right? written by Luke, they're both meant to be read together to oversimplify the life of Christ, the life of the church. Um, to think on John and Revelation this way is profoundly fascinating. We said just a minute ago that John begins in the beginning, right? And then Revelation is going to end with the end. It's almost as if John said, let me, let me take the apocalyptic genre and do the entire Bible, and not only the entire Bible, but the entirety of human history and the climax of this cosmos. Let me do that for you. Fantastic. Just fantastic. Okay, 
So you have the one of the seven angels who um, had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. You know, having the glory of God in the Old Testament means being enveloped in the cloud and you see in the cloud of his presence and you see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. But increasingly in John's gospel, that gives way to the image of Christ crucified. So it's very fascinating. I think that... um, mm, I can hear the tune in my head, but what is it? Lo, he comes with clouds descending from Wesley. And he talks about the wounds and scars of Christ upon his return as being these glorious jewels. Think on this. Think on this. New Jerusalem is coming down from heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So what you're seeing is this city that is the bride and it's clothed in Christ. And to be clothed in Christ is to be clothed in the glory of God, perhaps even even Christ crucified. And when you're looking upon the city, you're looking upon the wounds of Christ. And those are bedazzling jewels. Your mileage may vary, but it's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about. Because the bride is, is clothed in Christ. And he is the glory of God. And thus what you see in seeing her is ultimately him. All right, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So 12 gates um, with yeah, with the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And then all the, and, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and upon them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. Yeah, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And we pointed out that this may be where the 24 elders really come from. Old and New Testament climaxing in this moment would be another way to see it. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. This city is thus larger than many nations. <laughs> the, the footnote points you to the city is larger than many nations. Its length and width and height are equal. So the city is a cube. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. I have no idea. Yeah. (laughs) No idea. But I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. I have no idea. I'd love to know more. Do you think of angels me- as measuring things? You should. I mean, that's th- right. That's the that's the entry point. That's the thing that's worth it in and of itself. <laughs> Remember that it, I, we make fun of this. Remember the it, well. It's even come a, become a saying. Um, how many? How many? We're just arguing over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But it's really actually, it's actually a good question. <laughs> it's actually a good question because can something be, can something be visible and, and in a sense be, be local? That is, like, here it is and it's not over there. Um, and yet not be circumscribed, taking up time and space. The answer to that in one sense is yes, because of the Lord's Supper. Think of the body of Christ. It's his true body dwelling with us, but not in such a way that it, you know, in such a way that it's local. It's right here and not over there. And in such a way that it doesn't take up space. You're not going to be able to, it's not displacing molecules to be there, right? 
And this is very much analogous to how theologians think of the presence of angels right? as being localized. You know, when Gabriel made the announcement to Mary, he's there and not somewhere else, and yet not there in the sense that he's displacing molecules and this kind of thing. It's very fascinating. So, so yeah, this idea of measurements. Measurements. Maybe metric. That's a good question. Wouldn't it benefit us as Americans if they did it our way? We'd finally, we'd finally have it over on the world. Okay, well, sorry. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I mean, what this is, is this is a city beyond comprehension. How would that even work? That it be clear as glass. I mean, this is unknown. Like, what is really being communicated here? Unknown to human beings. Incomprehensible to us. Things we cannot yet even fully grasp how this will be. Beautiful and wonderful in, in every way. The riches of the world are rich, you know, are, are, are costly, valuable because they're of their scarcity. Here, they're entirely plentiful. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. So there's, there's the key um, being twelve. Um, like on the breastplate of the ephod, I don't think they're identical. I'd have to check on that for sure, but I don't think they're identical. There's probably some, well, yeah, there's for sure some overlap. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, or and the Lamb. That is, uh, again, cannot be cannot be overstated how important that line is. That Jerusalem would have no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, the Father and the Son. Where's the Spirit? Everywhere. <laughs> and, in, and in every being, indwelling us all. And leading us, leading us in uh, praise to the Lamb and the one who is upon the throne. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Beautiful hymn, I want to walk as a child of the light. Beautiful hymn. Yeah, so, so I mean, I think, I think here, what, is, what are suns and moons for in the ancient world? They're for the changing of seasons and the marking of time and all of this. So the fact that they're not here really has to do with the fact that there's no shadow or turning in God. He is, James describes him as the father of lights. And we, we are those lights. And you can also see like where they shine as the stars, as the moon and the sun and that kind of thing. Like the heavenly bodies become ours. The heavenly bodies are us in this conception. So the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. No need for light because the glory of God gives its light. Again, very fascinating to think of this as the crucified Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said? I am the light of the world. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. What? After our lobotomy, we don't all get made into the same ethnicity and race or whatever you want to say? No. no. The beauty is that the glory of the nations are brought in. And, we, and in some sense, we, we remain with our nationality. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a purely Gnostic idea that, 
Isn't it that I would show up and like be, a, be an African-American woman in heaven? <laughs> I mean, what, what would I be instead, a ball of light? I mean, this is all like Enya-type stuff, New Age-type nonsense made up by people who smoked a little too much weed in the 70s, I think. <laughs> what, but concretely, I mean, if I'm going to be me, I'm going to be of this nationality. And if you're going to be you, you're going to be of your nationality. And if our Christian brothers and sisters in Africa and China and South America and all over the place, they're going to retain their nationality. And, and all together, we're going to bring in the riches and treasures, the true riches and treasures of the nations, okay, which are things like faith, hope, and love. <laughs> things like giving a glass of cold water even to a little child in the name of Jesus. So these are going to be the true riches. I think it was Chrysostom under persecution. I don't know, it was probably more than just him, because this idea caught on. But under persecution, I'm preparing myself to do this. So, um, so they, said, they said, you've been preaching illegally. You've been conducting divine service, having the sacrament illegally against our orders. Forfeit, you know, some large sum of money. Empty the church's treasuries and bring them to us. What did Chrysostom do? Went out into the streets and gathered up all the poor and brought them to the emperor and said, these are the church's treasures. These are the people who we value more than anything. Oh, the money? Yeah, we don't value that at all. So that's, this is the glory of the nation. So by its light, what, what's light? The lamp of the Lamb. Will the nations walk? And there's a dynamic word. Again, I just want to point it out because this thing is so ingrained in our heads that when you get to the end, it's still, it's static. We're all just stuck there for eternity. No. No. There's nations, and the nations are going to walk. There's going to be a journey and a progression in the age which is to come. There's going to be beauty and delight and all the things we love most about this, this earth amplified. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. There we go. And its gates will never be shut by day. Why would they be shut? Yeah, only if there's a threat. That's the only reason you, cut, you, shut, the, you shut the gates. Well, there's no threat. It's utter peace. So the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. How come no night? Well, night is darkness, of course, and Christ is the light wherever he is. Yeah, I'll try to remember to talk a little about that next week. Anyway, I'm sorry I kept you so long. The Lord be with you.